It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? The first simply disappears, the other two died. I don't know why I'd started that way. I actually, as soon as I started, I said, don't be the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt. But I grew up watching that, and I grew up watching horror movies, and Goosebumps were my favorite books. Fun fact, I have the same birthday as R.L. Stein. That might be a, a big key as to why I chose to do this form of podcasting. I like to be scared, and I like to scare people. Now, not every story I choose to tell will be true because it'll be maybe a conspiracy, but I will make that a huge disclaimer when I start it. However, a majority of the topics that I choose to talk about will be true because I want to know the psychology behind why people are nuts because people are fucking crazy. No, not everybody is crazy, but a high percentage of people have some strange habits. Like for example, me, I love being scared and I love scaring people, but I'm not a serial killer but I like talking about serial killers. So with that being said, this is the Fear Podcast. Welcome to Lullaby. I am your host, Ashley Lana, your certified nightmare prescriber, the giver of nightmares, the fueler of, I don't know. (laughs) I made that up on the spot. Now, as I said, I love the scare and I'm fascinated by the psychology behind serial killers and true crime. I absolutely love this stuff. Ghosts and demons. I have this mindset of what I like to call an open-minded skeptic, which is why I immerse myself in research. And then I go from there to base my beliefs on conspiracies and the paranormal. But either way, I love it. I love this stuff. Now, I hope you're listening because the story that I have for you tonight is scary. It's pretty scary. (laughs) I have this thing where demons and possession just terrifies the hell out of me. So I thought, why not start with something that's pretty low-key, but still scary, before I move into the hardcore heavy hitters later on. Get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. This story contains subject matter involving mental illness and acts of self-harm. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. No one can perform exorcisms legitimately upon the possessed unless he has obtained special and express permission from the local ordinary. Illness, especially psychological illness, is a very different matter. It is important to ascertain that one is dealing with the presence of the evil one and not an illness. Vatican Code of Canon Law, 1172. The night terrors and the violent physical convulsions from seizures were only the beginning. Endless nights of sleep paralysis and hallucinations eventually evolved into violent fits of behaviors that took effect on those around her. Neurologists diagnosed her with schizophrenia and epileptic psychosis, a temporal lobe epilepsy, 
a disorder that causes seizures, visual and auditory hallucinations, as well as memory loss in some cases. Doctors prescribed her the drug Tegretol, an anti-seizure and mood stabilizer, as well as other antipsychotic drugs to help with her condition. It was after this that the demonic voices and deathly hallucinations of the devil enveloped her life. The demons would recite the incantation that she was damned and would rot in hell. This would happen while she would pray, and eventually would start happening just throughout her regular day. Soon religious objects would provoke violent anger and acts of aggressive behavior towards herself and her family. The medical community continued to prescribe medications that had no effect on her. This was when the family turned to the help of the church. Over the course of 10 months, she underwent 67 exorcisms. This is the horrific true story of the possession of Annalise McKell. Born in Bavaria, West Germany in 1952, Annalise McKell was raised in a strict religious household in a Catholic village known as Klindenburg. Annalise's parents were devout Catholics. Her father, Joseph, was a trainee priest before he was called into duty for World War II, where eventually he became a prisoner of war. Prior to Annalise being born, her mother, Anne, gave birth to an illegitimate child out of wedlock. This child's name was Martha. The punishment that Anne faced for her actions was that she was required to wear a black veil on her wedding day to show her repentance. It was because of these actions and the backlash from her community that when Annalise was born, her parents began imposing the idea of atonement on Annalise for her mother's sins through religious devotion. Here is a letter Annalise wrote to her mother. Quote, To reach heaven, nothing is too much for me. I am willing to give my life for others, for the sake of God, and expect his reward rather than human reward." End quote. In 1956, at only eight years old, Martha developed a tumor in her kidney, which she underwent surgery to remove and sadly died due to complications. This devastated the McKell family. After, Anna and Joseph had three other children, Gertrude, Barbara, and Roswitha. Joseph became distant and stern after returning from the war, but he was still loving and caring towards his family, although he was quite strict. Anna was known for being extremely overbearing and was quoted as being suffocating. Okay, I'm gonna say it. Why is it always the mothers? For those of you who aren't familiar with a lot of true crime stories, you will soon realize with episodes to come that when in doubt, it's the mothers. Together, the girl's parents controlled everything in their daughter's lives, from their daily routine, their clothes, what they could have for entertainment and read for books, and not allowing them to have any male friends. The family was deeply religious and they attended mass two times a week, daily family prayer was practiced, and solo morning and solo nightly prayers were incorporated into routine. This was their practice. This is how they enjoyed life. And everybody seemed to be happy. So, so far, so good, right? We're good, same page? Okay, let's move on. Overall, the McHale family was a normal, happy family. Unfortunately, Annalise was prone to illness and was fragile, but beyond that, she was very happy. She was intelligent, she was observant, and she was very wise beyond her age. Looking at photos, you guys, you can actually see just how warm and intelligent she is. Like, you don't need to be in her presence to feel this from these images. The events that happened to Annalise as she grew older are very sad, but her story needs to be told. This is where everything begins to go downhill. The first event occurred in September 1968, when Annalise was only 16 years old. She was sitting in class when she experienced her first seizure, which caused her to black out. 
When she regained consciousness, she just simply laughed it off and she told her classmates that she was just exhausted. For the rest of the day, she walked around in what seemed like a haze. She did not want to draw any negative attention to the event, but she also claims not to remember the event. So it's a bit conflicting. Her family and her friends vividly remember the incident and the behavior that followed afterwards. It was later that night, Annalisa woke to her body thrashing about in convulsions to which she lost consciousness and wet the bed. Later that night, she was awakened again by an unknown force taking control of her body. The pressure that sat upon her chest was powerful and it unsettled her stomach. Laying there, Annalise felt as though she was being controlled by some unknown entity and she was unable to cry for help. She described this experience as, quote, a dread that makes you think that you are right there in the middle of hell. You are totally, utterly deserted. You can call, you offer help to the mother of God, maybe, but, but they are all deaf and nobody hears you. It was at this moment when people believed Annalise became possessed. Now, I was really curious about this because prior to everything up to this moment, there was no signs of any demonic entity or presence within her life that was documented. So I decided to look into the four degrees of demonic possession. So if possession were the case in this incident, wouldn't this be considered stage two, which is oppression, where the demonic activity increases with physical attacks, including sleep disturbances, illnesses, depressions, and major anxiety. So from what I studied, this would not be the exact moment when Annalise got possessed, but believing demonic entities were at work, something definitely did happen that night. Just not possession to the degree, not the fourth stage, which is pure possession. A medical term for what Annalise experienced is what is known as sleep paralysis, which is the temporary loss of movement while a person transitions between wakefulness and sleep. Signs of being unable to move and or breathe accompanied by the feeling of being choked and a sense of pressure on the body. This can last anywhere from seconds to minutes. And I have friends who have sleep paralysis and they say that it's absolutely terrifying and it does feel like there is something sitting on you and it wakes you from your sleep. It was after this moment that the gradual awareness of demonic possession began to circle in Annalise's mind, which eventually started to consume her thoughts. In 1969, she experienced her second wave of sleep paralysis and seizures. With all the same symptoms as her first episode, during the day she lost consciousness and at night the sleep paralysis. This absolutely terrified her. So she went to go see her family doctor, Dr. Vok, who, which she got referred to a neurologist, Dr. Luthi. I don't have a lisp. It's actually spelt L-U-T-H-Y. It's not important, but the more I say it, it's going to be thought of. Moving on. Dr. Luthi performed an electroencephalogram, an EEG test, that came back negative for any abnormal signs of neurological disorders. However, epilepsy was suspected, but it was never diagnosed. Dr. Luthi cleared Annalise of any neurological and psychological perspectives. She informed the family that Annalise was suffering from cerebral seizures and epilepsy, but because of the time frame between the two incidences was over a year, no medications were prescribed. In 1970, Annalise contracted tonsillitis as well as pneumonia, 
a lung infection that inflames the air sacs of the lungs and may fill up with fluid or pus causing coughing and difficulties breathing. She also contracted pleurisy, a condition where the thin layer of the tissue that separates the lungs becomes inflamed and causes severe chest pain and trouble breathing. Annalise was confined to her bedroom to recover, and she was not able to leave. Therefore, she was stuck around her overbearing parents where she was unable to have any individuality and speak her mind at this point. When her and her mother would get into arguments, her mother would simply ignore her and or continue to pray really loud over Annalise. Her conditions got so bad that she had to be admitted into hospital where she was diagnosed with a heart and circulation problems. She was then transferred to a specialty clinic. The culture shock of the new environment had caused Annalise to become quiet and secluded from everyone due to the lack of being able to interact with everyone in the hospital. She developed depression, and the other teens in the hospital began bullying her as a result. They gave her the nickname Snotnose. In 1970, Annalise experienced her third episode of sleep paralysis. She woke up screaming and thrashing about in her bed, causing the nurses to run to her aid. The nurses understood that she was having an episode and told her that she was fine. This caused the other teens to make fun of her even more since they already didn't like her, saying that she was, quote, possessed by the devil. Annalise continued to pray and she used her faith to help her with her struggles while in the hospital. It was during this time when Annalise said that while she was praying, she would smell the sweet odor that made her feel a euphoric sense of being. And she was convinced from this moment that she was touched by the Virgin Mary. In June of 1970, Annalise was referred to another neurologist by the name of Dr. Von Haler. He ran more standardized psychological and neurological tests, again with the EEG. He did find abnormal brainwave patterns in Annalise's results. This is when she was prescribed with more medication for anti-seizures. The side effects included Annalise was smelling horrid fecal matter, which she described as burning, which no one else smelled hallucinations of demon faces and voices telling her that she was going to rot in hell began. This only accelerated her depression and drove her into having suicidal thoughts. It wasn't until she started taking these medications that she began seeing demonic hallucinations. Her heart health and circulation improved and Annalise was discharged from hospital and was sent back home. Although Annalise was happy to be back home, her entire demeanor changed. She was irritable, and she felt that she had lost so many friends due to her time being away at the hospital. This caused Annalise to become even more of a recluse. This attitude also caused her mother to become even more controlling. Again with the mothers. Here we go. Annalise started having seizures again, and she was suffering from even stronger hallucinations. Visions of demons in people's faces and in objects as well. She was growing increasingly more skittish to her surroundings. She stated that the devil himself started appearing more to her, especially when compared to before. Okay, let us pause for a second to take a little mental food for thought here. So this would have been around the time frame when William Peter Blatty released the Exorcist novel. And everybody knows the exorcist this novel invoked like a new kind of fear into like readers and it's known that annalise was an avid reader now there's no proof that she read the exorcist but her parents monitored what she read but who's to say that she she was a smart girl so she definitely heard about the book now whether or not she found ways to read it is unknown but it's kind of impossible to ignore the possibility that she may have indeed read it 
complete speculation, but I feel like this is important because that book created shockwaves throughout entertainment in the world. Annalise went back to the doctor and was referred to a different specialist, Dr. Raquel, who found circulatory abnormalities, which sadly had Annalise shipped again to yet another doctor, Dr. Packhauser, who was concerned about her seizures. After being bounced around from specialist to specialist, Annalise ended up back to her original neurologist, Dr. Luthi. With this, she was prescribed a more intense medication called Zentropil. The side effects of Zentropil are pretty much the entire alphabet of side effects. Like it's, it causes rashes, insomnia, headaches, and it can even affect the central nervous system and the cardiovascular system. In June 1973, Annalise reported that the medication did work on stopping her seizures, but she was still suffering from demonic hallucinations. Dr. Luthi seemed more happy that the medication was preventing the seizures rather than Annalise expressing that she was having demonic hallucinations. Dr. Luthi was very pleased to discover that neurological brainwave activity was normal again after performing the EEG test on Annalise again. One day while Annalise was going about her daily routine, she heard the sound of knocking coming from the walls, sometimes the floors and even the ceilings. This was a new experience for her and it scared her because this never happened before. As a result of this, she was sent to a hearing specialist who of course found absolutely nothing wrong with her hearing. It is at this point when Annalise and her family were getting irritated with doctors and hospitals. Medication seemed to work on her circulatory and heart problems, but it was not helping with Annalise's biggest concern, which was her demonic hallucinations and the sounds of the voices and seeing demons everywhere. Everyone kept telling her that she had no specific diagnosis. So let's refer back to Martha, Annalise's older sister. She died when she was eight, right? And she died during a medical surgery. This would put a dark cloud over the McKell family whenever they viewed the medical community. Annalise believed that she was truly made to suffer for a greater reason, that she was destined to have these events occur. She began showing anger and resentment towards anything religious. Annalise argued that praying was painful and any religious objects brought her to immense anger and distress. Anna, Annalise's mother, claims that there was one instance when she entered the room and Annalise was mesmerized, but completely filled with anger at the statue of the Virgin Mary and that she had jet black eyes. Eventually, the resentment for the church had Annalise claim that going near and trying to enter a church was physically and mentally painful to attempt. In 1973, during a pilgrimage in San Damiano, Italy, that was known for virgin revelations, the family thought of the possibility that Annalise was molested by the devil, and that explains the unfortunate events. Annalise refused to approach the shrine, exclaiming that, quote, the earth was burning underneath her feet. Her father bought her a holy cross, but Annalise expressed that she could not wear it because it was heavy around her chest and it stopped her breathing. Her voice would deepen and growl around holy objects and pictures. The other pilgrims would even feel an evil aura surrounding the girl. With great excitement, she attended the Advanced Pedagogical Studies School from Wurzburg. The subjects that she chose for her specializations were theology and the practice of teaching as well as music. Unfortunately, her dreams of becoming a teacher were taken away from her as her health spiraled downward quickly. Annalise was struggling with her studies. She could not focus and lacked the motivation to even attend her classes. Her depression and suicidal thoughts got worse. 
she was still suffering from horrific hallucinations of demons and hearing terrifying voices and sounds. After receiving another EEG test, doctors found that her results showed a brain pathology of the left temporal lobe and that she was showing more signs of epilepsy. Again, the medication was having zero effect on the demonic hallucinations, with increased depression and lack of sleep causing her to pull away even more from her daily life. In 1973, Annalise returned to Dr. Luthi, determined to enforce the belief that the devil is possessing her, and was obsessed with the idea that Satan wanted her. Dr. Luthi concluded that Annalise's situation worsened, and that she was incapable of making her own decisions, and she appeared disorientated, confused, and lacked proper decisiveness. As Annalise's condition got worse, her mother Anna began becoming heavily burdened with the rumors of what the community was saying about her daughter, having internal struggles with her previous backlash of having an illegitimate child out of wedlock was making her paranoia even worse. Everyone knew about the medical history and the epileptic hallucinations. A family friend and a member of their church congregation mentioned that Annalise might be possessed. Her mother Anna preferred that rationalization over having people thinking that her daughter suffered from a possible mental illness. Moving forward, Annalise's parents were already sick and tired of the medical community. They were convinced that their daughter could possibly be possessed. Anna, Annalise's mother, swears that Dr. Luthi suggested seeking out the help of a Catholic priest because Annalise may in fact be possessed. Dr. Luthi later went on to strongly deny these claims. Annalise began to beg her parents to allow her to ask for help from the Catholic Church to save her soul from the devil. Her parents agreed. Okay, let me just theorize for a second here. I thought about something. So in the story, it's about 1973. And I remember that in 1973, that's when the Exorcist film was released. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and it won two. And it was the top grossing movie of 1973 and is still the world's number one ranked scariest movie of all time. If you haven't seen it, wow, that is all. If you haven't heard of it, wow, that is all. Okay, so The Exorcist was so new and it was so shocking to audiences that people actually suffered from heart attacks and some fainted while they were watching it. It got so bad that they had to decrease the amount of showings in theaters. And then when The Exorcist was released, the Catholic community just went berserk. I found newspaper articles because I was really interested in specifically how the Catholic community responded. So from 1974, I found an article that explained that after the film was released, the increase of Catholic clergymen receiving home calls and visits from families skyrocketed due to people believing that they were possessed and wanted exorcisms. Some people called priests just because they couldn't sleep after watching it. That's how intense this film was. The film was banned in a lot of countries and the Catholic Church didn't approve the depictions of the exorcisms in the film because the church believed that it would increase misconceptions. I found a quote from a priest named Father Woods who wrote the novel The Devil and he was saying that the priests in the film, quote, departed from the ritual in the most stupid and reckless manner. They tried to fight the demon hand to hand instead of relying on God. Now, okay, this isn't how Father Alt and Father Renz dealt with Annalise's exorcism as I continue. It's just to explain how much controversy and publicity that the exorcist film received when it was released. 
Now, let me clarify that there is no proof to confirm that Annalise read or seen the film, but it's important to understand the, the stigma that was behind the film when it came out, and especially if Annalise and her family were very religious and lived in this very religious community, the odds of them not hearing about it are slim to none. Now, maybe in some crazy world they actually didn't hear about it, but I would be very shocked if they didn't. Annalise also would have been in college at this time. Yes, Annalise's parents constricted what Annalise and her sisters could read, but Annalise was also in college at this point, so she did have that free time away from home to explore her individuality and read this unbelievably popular book and or go see this movie. It's complete pure speculation, I am clarifying that, but I believe this information is important and the power of suggestion at the time and now is very powerful. That is all, so if she heard about it, it might be a little good reasoning since she didn't want to be known for having a mental illness, but that's just my opinion. Moving on. Annalise, along with her parents, sought the aid of two Catholic priests, Father Haberger and Father Roth. The priests both concluded that although shy and reserved, Annalise was perfectly normal and she exhibited no signs of demonic possession and they referred her back to doctors. This girl is getting bounced around like a ping pong ball. Another priest by the name of Father Roderick was contacted by the family who had heard about Annalise's demonic events while in Italy in the presence of the statue of the Virgin Mary. He was interested in the young girl's condition and he believed that there was a possibility of possession, but due to his age, being 79 years old, he didn't really want to get involved. Father Roderick referred Annalise yet another time to Father Herman. He met with Annalise 10 times and found absolutely no evidence of possession. She did not show any negativity towards holy objects and was able to partake in prayer, which was something Annalise insisted caused her physical and mental pain before. With this behavior, Father Herman told the family that Annalise needed to see a neurologist. Father Alt was another priest who insisted that he should meet with Annalise, and he had this unexplainable feeling that he knew everything about the family without ever even meeting them. It was in these meetings with Annalise that he explained that he could in fact hear the knockings on the floors, the walls, and the ceilings, as well as the putrid burning fecal matter smell that Annalise expressed smelling. Father Alt began to take the necessary steps for conducting an exorcism. These steps are to confirm a demonic possession. Criteria included aggressive behavior towards holy objects, any negative forms of speech against the Catholic faith, refusal of possession discussion with a priest, sudden knowledge of unknown languages, and foul odors, just to name a few. The Conference of Catholic Bishops state that before performing any exorcism, a pre-evaluation protocol must be followed. An assessment should occur to determine the true state of the person. Only after a thorough examination, including psychiatric and psychological testing, might the person be referred to the exorcist for a final determination regarding the demonic possession. The rule goes on to state that, to be clear, the actual determination of whether a member of the faithful is genuinely possessed by the devil is made by the church, even if the individuals claim to be possessed through their own self-diagnosis or psychosis. Needless to say, Annalise McKell was not granted an exorcism at this time. A month prior, Annalise had a premonition that the Virgin Mary asked her to do penance for priests and the people of Germany. If she did not, then the people would die and their souls would be lost. 
Annalise was given three days to reflect on her choice to either accept or decline the offer. Annalise expressed that she accepted because if she did not, she believed her condition would only intensify. She was quoted saying to a priest, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity and what what should I do? I I have I have to improve. You pray for me and I want to suffer for other people, but but this is just too cruel. Throughout this time frame, Annalise was still struggling in college. Despite her painful condition, she found happiness with her new boyfriend, Peter. He cared deeply for Annalise and was concerned about her beliefs that he convinced her to see another neurologist. Again, the doctor confidently told Annalise that she was suffering from severe epilepsy. With this information, Annalise was prescribed Tegretol, which is an even stronger form of anti-convulsion medication. Annalise was only getting worse. She reported going back to her doctor, Dr. Schlepp, and complained of headaches and that one side of her body was beginning to show signs of paralysis. Dr. Schlepp said that her side effects were from the Tegretol and told her that she should continue taking it. Anger now became episodes of pure aggressive rage. Annalise's behavior was quickly becoming more dangerous. She would try to bite, hit, kick her boyfriend, and even her family. The increase of the strange behavior was disturbing and it was a major cause for concern for everyone. The many times that she went back to Dr. Schlepp, he continued to tell her to stay on this medication. Religious objects were now completely being destroyed and the voices and hallucinations were growing consistent. At this point, Annalise's personality was called that of a different person. She refused to go to church, she would stay at home, and she would scratch the walls and scream in fists of rage. She would even crawl on the floor and bark like a dog. She would lick her own urine off the floor, and she would eat bugs and spiders and dead animals. Another disturbing behavior Annalise displayed was slamming her body onto her knees and jumping back up and repeating this horrific display. She would do this up to 400 times a day, and this caused tearing of her tendons and severe ulcers, and she would chant, Jesus, forgiveness, and mercy. Jesus, forgiveness, and mercy. In 1975, Bishop Joseph Stengel granted permission to carry out a minor exorcism after the claims Father L reported during his visits. The difference between minor and major exorcisms is that minor exorcisms are just the recitement of prayers to the person, where a major exorcism is the lengthy expulsion of a demon to banish it in the name of Jesus Christ back to hell. Father Alt was convinced that this was a case of demonic possession, stating that during these prayers, Annalise would growl and scream, screaming that demons were manipulating her and she would thrash about knocking objects and becoming unbelievably violent. The screams and the growls are unbelievably disturbing.
Scientifically, what Annalise is experiencing is an intense display of schizophrenic psychosis. Or, do you think that she is truly possessed by demons? Barely sleeping at this time and refusing to consume any food and barely any water, Annalise's condition worsened. The effect this had on the family was just overwhelming. Father Alt was determined to perform a major exorcism, but according to Catholic law, he needed the consent of the bishop to do so. He needed more backup. He got the help of another priest, Father Renz, who was actually not convinced that Annalise was possessed because she didn't mention demons and acted completely normal when he met her. Remember, several priests insisted that Annalise seek medical help, but Annalise didn't want to. She didn't want to be known for having a mental illness. Now, due to numerous requests, a skeptical Bishop Joseph Stengel finally approved the notion, and in September 1975, Father Alt and Father Renz were to secretly carry out the full exorcism on Annalise Mikkel. September 24, 1975 was the first exorcism. Anne and Joseph McKell were present and had full faith that the exorcism procedures would be successful and completely disregarded any form of medical and scientific intervention. Annalise's boyfriend Peter and her sisters were also present during the exorcisms. The exorcism went as expected. Blessed water was sprinkled over Annalise, and she reacted with growls and anger, convulsions, and vulgar words. She shouted, put that shit away. And she would have to be restrained. Annalise expressed that she had an outer body experience with the exorcism. She said she had no control. She was just watching her body be controlled by the demons. All of them at once, or at one time, they wanted out of hell. Each voice was accompanied by a different accent and volume. Annalise claimed to be possessed by six separate demons. Annalise stated that six demons possessed her body. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, who murdered his brother. Nero was the Roman emperor who had Christians burned at the stake. Fleshman, who was a 16th century womanizing fallen priest. And Hitler, the leader of the Nazis in World War II. Lucifer, who was interestingly enough the only actual demon of the six, the rest were human. <laughs> Be 
Because of her religious studies and love for reading, Annalise would have an extensive knowledge about each of the said demons that were inside of her. At one point where Annalise claims to be Lucifer, she says the phrase, the snot-nosed brat was cursed. She belongs to us, she is no longer alive. Now let that statement sink in for a bit, all right? Do you remember earlier when I explained that Annalise was bullied by the other teenage patients in the hospital? Remember the nickname they called her? Yeah, that's on the money. All of the religious prayers were read in Latin, which Annalise was actually already fluent in. Her family also stated that she was able to shout other languages during the exorcism that she didn't know, like Chinese and Dutch. From September 24th, 1975 to June 30th, 1976, Father Alt and Father Renz performed 67 exorcisms twice a week for hours on Annalise. With the consent of Annalise, 51 of the sessions were recorded. Self-harm during the exorcisms became a regular occurrence. She would hit and throw objects at people, smash her head into walls, and even break her head through windows. The tendons and bones in her knees had become torn and even fractured in places. Her teeth were horribly chipped due to Annalise biting into walls. Her weight had decreased to an alarming state, and she was not eating or drinking at this point. Throughout this exorcism process, her parents, nor her priests, seeked out the help of medical attention. They claimed that Annalise did not want that, and Annalise had mentioned multiple times that her suffering would end in July. On July 1st, 1976, the day after her final exorcism, Annalise McHale succumbed to her health and died at just the young age of 23 years old. She weighed 68 pounds, and after 67 grueling exorcisms, as Annalise predicted, she was finally free of her demons in July. Immediately following her death, Joseph McHale brought in Dr. Keller, a medical examiner, to issue a death certificate stating that Annalise died of natural causes. But after inspecting Annalise's body, Dr. Keller refused and explained that he could not issue a death certificate and claimed that it was not natural causes. Dr. Keller issued that a post-mortem autopsy was to be conducted to cite the actual cause of death. The autopsy report concluded that Annalise McHale died of malnutrition and dehydration due to the semi-starved state for almost a year and the added aggravated physical behavior that sped up the process. Her body was bruised, her knees were broken from being forced into constant praying on her knees, and the violent bouts of thrashing Annalise would also do on her own. Her internal organs, including her brain, were found to be healthy and normal. The criminal investigation ensued following the results of the autopsy report. During this long investigation, just before Anna and Joseph were to go to trial for manslaughter of their daughter, they demanded that Annalise's grave be dug up to see her body and to prove that she was possessed. They believed that if her daughter was possessed, then her body would show no signs of decay. Although commission was granted to unearth the grave, the police did not allow anyone to see the body. The police report revealed that the body showed normal signs of active decay. On March 30, 1978, the trial of Annalise McKell was Germany's largest criminal investigation, not including the Nazi war crime trials. The trial had no jury and was held in front of a court of one judge. The Catholic Church wanted no part in the trial. 
they only provided efficient defense attorneys to Father Alt and Father Renz. Father Alt was the first to testify. He explained that the exorcisms were needed and that Annalise showed the signs of demonic possession and that medical medication was not helping her. They used the exorcism recordings to help defend their case in court. Father Alt also testified saying that Annalise refused medical help since it did not help in the past and she did not want to be treated as if she were mentally ill. She truly believed she was possessed. Father Alt said that he was doing what was right for Annalise. During the trial, many doctors stated that Annalise was not possessed by demons and that she suffered from depression, psychogenic psychosis, and epilepsy, as well as being raised in a suppressive, strict household. The growing delusions that were fueled by Father Alt insisting Annalise was indeed possessed did not help the situation. The defense argued that under constitutional right under practicing religious beliefs, that performing the exorcism was the right thing to do. The court overruled this argument. The prosecution was told by medical examiners that Annalise's condition had the ability to be prevented a week prior to her death. The prosecutor finalized that the exorcisms that were performed were done so with negligence. The trial concluded that Father Alt, Father Renz, Anna and Joseph McHale were found guilty of manslaughter for the negligence resulting in the homicide of their 23-year-old daughter, Annalise McHale. In 2005, Annalise's mother, Anna McHale, told an interview, quote, God told us to exercise my daughter's demons. I do not regret her death. So that was the story, you guys. Annalise McHale, the possession of the 23-year-old girl who went through 67 exorcisms. 67 exorcisms. 67. I don't even know 67 people. Oh, the poor child. That's unbelievably terrible. But Annalise wanted her story to be told. That's what she wanted. She didn't believe that she had a mental illness. She genuinely believed that she was possessed by the devil. And unfortunately, she couldn't find the medical help that she needed. And I think, in my opinion, stopped too soon trying to find medical help. But what do you think? Do you believe that Annalise was possessed? Or do you believe that the poor girl suffered a mental illness? The story was actually made into a successful movie adaption. It was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And I remember watching that movie when I was younger. And there's this one scene, those of you who've seen the movie will distinctly remember this scene where her boyfriend stays with her the night because she was scared and she's in college and he wakes up and he looks over the bed and she's on the floor just contorted in this stiff position and her eyes are just completely black and what happens with epilepsy and with seizures is your pupils dilate and they just turn into fucking dinner plates and that scene just wrecked me it was so scary There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. As an avid horror fan who is desensitized to many things considered scary, I am on this never-ending quest to find truly scary movies. Please send me your horror films and tell me why you loved it. Caution, if you were one of those people who believe Netflix when Netflix says this is the scariest movie you'll ever see, and then you actually find it scary, tell me this, okay? Because then I'll be less critical when I watch the movie that you recommend. Now, don't think that I find those who cannot watch horror movies to be weak 
and that we horror people are superior. That's not what I think. I think that's ridiculous. I am aware that us horror junkies are a twisted breed. And while I'm on my never-ending fear quest, I will suggest a horror movie every episode that relates to the topic of the episode's story. And it will be a film that I genuinely found scary because it's hard to find scary films. Now, this week, the first film suggestion is one that many of you probably actually have never even heard of. It's the 2010 found footage film, Atrocious. And how I came upon this movie was I went to Blockbuster. You guys remember Blockbuster? That place that you go to on Friday nights, super excited to watch a movie that was never there because everybody else got it. Yeah, that place. Well, when it was selling out, they were selling all their movies, right? So I went and I was looking at all the new releases and down in the corner, and this is so dramatic and I'm not even kidding, down in the bottom left corner of the very bottom row, there was the creepiest cover photo on this movie. And it just said atrocious with these creepy black lit eyes. And I didn't even know what the film was about. I was just like, well, this is gonna be the best three bucks I ever spend. And I purchased it and I went home and I turned off the lights and I set up this movie and I had to turn the lights on. And I'm one of those people that can fall asleep with horror movies. I'm one of those people. I'll get bored and I'll fall asleep. This movie has you thinking all the way until the very last second, one thing that is scary to completely mind twist you and you're left just going cold. Like, you know that feeling when you're watching something that scares you and you don't jump and you don't scream, you just get that cold feeling from your toes to all the way to your head and your hair stand up? that feeling this movie gave me that feeling and i love that feeling am i sadistic probably so atrocious is this spanish horror thriller film and it's in spanish so i speak spanish but for those of you who do not good news the majority of the subtitle dialogue is at the beginning and the plot line is really easy to follow quick summary a family is vacationing at their summer home in rural spain The teenagers begin investigating an urban legend about a missing girl that happened to be in the labyrinth behind their house. This movie has you thinking one thing and then at the last minute your mind is blown. So watch it, let me know what you think, send me your scary movies. I tried to scare you, now you try to scare me. And thank you for listening to this week's lullaby. Sweet dreams. Lights out.